You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, please join me in a word of prayer. O oh God of our delight, in you we find everlasting pleasure, hope without end, and life eternal. You promised that if we delight in you, you will give us the desires of our hearts. So satisfy us, Lord, as we draw near to your Son and drink from the fountain of living water and feast on the bread of life. And let all the wicked forsake their ways and turn to you, Lord, for you are rich in mercy and grace. You are pleased to forgive us of our transgressions and sins when we repent and turn to Christ. You promised that if we repent and turn to you, that our sins will be wiped out and that times of refreshing will come. Lord, we confess that our perspective is limited and narrow. We grow impatient in suffering. We grow anxious in uncertainty. But Lord, help us to trust in you, for your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are better than our ways. Give us faith to cling to you and to your promises that you never fail to keep. And now, as we incline our ears to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You promise that your word that goes forth from your mouth shall not return to you empty. So accomplish what you so desire in us today. We pray all this in the name of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us now continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Please open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 to 21, hear the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. Prayer is the awesome privilege of talking to the holy God. It is the language of the redeemed, a divine conversation with the Lord of the universe. But unfortunately, the modern church is largely characterized by prayerlessness, and perversion of prayer. And what we desperately need today is a reformation. We must reform our understanding and our practice of prayer according to the word of God. In short, we need to recover an understanding and practice of prayer that is deeply biblical. And by thoughtfully reflecting on Paul's famous prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3, we learn very important biblical principles, attitudes, and how-tos of prayer. I mentioned already last week that some biblical scholars consider this prayer 
to be the second most important prayer in all the Bible, ranking second only to the Lord's Prayer. Last week, we looked at the first half of this prayer, verses 14 to 19. And if you missed that sermon, I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon podcast. In the first half of the prayer, we saw why Paul prays and how he prays and to whom he prays and what he prays. And what we saw was that his petitions for the believers in Ephesus were so grand and so impressive. They were so impressive that you think that maybe Paul was exaggerating or maybe he was being too optimistic to think that God would actually answer these prayers. But we see here today that Paul does not back down. In the closing doxology of his prayer, verses 20 to 21, we, we will see precisely why Paul can pray with such enormous confidence and with great expectations. We will see that Paul prays what I like to call God-centered prayers. And I think if we can pray more like the apostle and pray God-centered prayers, it will completely change our prayer life and we too can pray with great confidence and great, with great expectations. From verse 20 to 21, we draw four principles of God-centered prayers. One, God-centered prayer acknowledges God's power. Two, God-centered prayer relies upon God's character. Three, God-centered prayer seeks for God's glory. And four, God-centered prayer submits to God's truth. So let's start with the first principle. God-centered prayer acknowledges God's power. There is a very popular idea that is going around in evangelical circles, especially in charismatic churches, and they say that there is power in prayer. Pray with passion, pray aloud, and pray frequently because there is power in prayer. But let me tell you something that might sound rather shocking to you. The truth is that there is no power in prayer. There is no power in prayer. There is no power in your prayers as if there is power inherent to the words that you speak, to the words that you formulate. I expect someone could challenge me and say, well then, how do you explain James chapter 5, verse 16? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Well, yes, of course, if we pray with the heart and the will that is aligned with God's, it bears powerful and effective results. However, power does not originate or flow from us or our prayers and the words that we speak. Rather, it is God Almighty who is all-powerful. It is God Almighty who is sovereign. God is the source of power, not our prayers. Therefore, 
God can hear our prayers and he can grant us what we ask in his omnipotence. This nuance is very, very important because understanding this nuance can help you set apart God-centered prayers and man-centered prayers. There are wicked false teachers today who claim to be specially anointed with power. And people pay them hundreds and thousands of dollars to receive their prayers of blessing. There are plenty of churches today that teach people to declare and to demand things into existence in Jesus' name. They declare and demand healing, wealth, prosperity, and fill in the blank. And when their prayers are not answered, they are told it's because they do not have enough faith, or they didn't pray hard enough, or they didn't give enough money, or they are told that they need to level up spiritually and seek the gift of tongues and pray unintelligible words, as if praying in tongues reaches the ear of God more effectively. I would suggest that these examples are man-centered prayers because the focus seems to be around the man or woman who is praying and their fervor and their passion and their faith and their words. If anyone could claim that they were specially anointed and their prayer had power, it was the Apostle Paul. But the reason why Paul could pray with such enormous confidence and with great expectations was not because he was an apostle, but it was because he had a firm grasp on whom he was praying to, the omnipotent God who is able. So Paul writes this in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do more immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Let's break this down. It says, God is able to do more than all we ask. And so this means that beyond your ability to ask, God is able to do far more. Perhaps your words lack elegance. Perhaps your petitions lack maturity. But don't you worry, because God is able to do more than all we ask. Perhaps you forgot to ask for something important. Perhaps you lack the wisdom to ask for the things that you need. But don't you worry, because God is able to do more than all we ask. Furthermore, God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. And so beyond the limitations of your imaginations, God is able to do far more. And so try to imagine what God can do for you. Use your wildest imaginations. What can God do for you? Well, whatever that thing is, whatever you can imagine, God can do even more. Your mind cannot conceive the wisdom of God 
and what good things that he has in store for his people. For he tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Furthermore, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul just does not back down. Beyond your ability to ask and conceive, God can do not just more, but immeasurably more. Paul wants us to know this is who our God is. The all-powerful God who gives in super abundance, nothing is impossible with God. You see, the focus of Paul's prayer is not on man, but the focus is on God and His power and His omnipotence. God-centered prayer acknowledges God's power. Secondly, God-centered prayer relies upon God's character. A lot of people in our society do not have a hard time believing in the existence of God. And they do not have a hard time believing that God is all-powerful, that God created this world. They believe that God is real. They believe that God is powerful. But it seems that they do not have the same confidence that God is personal. This understanding of God is what we call deism. Deism is the view that God is supreme, God is powerful, He created the universe, but does not personally interfere or interact with creation. And I would suggest that one reason for the prayerlessness we see in the lives of so many Christians today is because they are influenced by deism more than they realize. And they actually operate more out of the worldview of deism rather than biblical Christianity. If you believe in an all-powerful God, sure, but he is distant, he is not personal, he is not personally invested in you or interested in you, then why would you be motivated to pray to him? I suppose there's a lot of better things to do with your time than to pray to a far-removed, distant God. What assurance would you have that such a God will even hear your prayers and answer them? But Paul could pray with such enormous confidence and with great expectations, not just because he believed God is powerful, but also because he believed that God is personal and good. Paul's God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, not only powerful, but also good, loving, compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, merciful, gracious, righteous, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. We already saw in verse 14 how Paul addresses his prayer to God as his own Father. Through Jesus Christ, we have become children of God, and now we can directly approach Him with confidence, knowing that He will show us fatherly care. 
In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Saddam Hussein, the most notorious president of Iraq, was found guilty of numerous crimes against humanity. He was executed in 2000 and 2006. Many people suffered because of him under his regime as he carried out torture and mass killings of tens of thousands of people. But this man, that the world only knew as a ruthless and cruel man was described as a tender father by his own daughters. There are several accounts that actually portray Saddam Hussein as a caring, protective, and generous father. And what Jesus is telling us is that if earthly fathers and even a criminal like Saddam Hussein can give good gifts to his children, then how much more, how much more will the good and heavenly Father delight in giving good gifts to his children? We should not expect anything less from God than from the best of earthly fathers. And just as a good and loving father doesn't always give everything and anything their child wants and asks for, God does not give to his children everything and anything we pray for. He knows that our hearts are prone to evil and that our human perspective is narrow. He knows that. And so thank God that he does not always give us what we want but he gives us what we need. We are often unable to tell the difference between the two, what we want and what we need. But our Heavenly Father knows what is best for you and for me. Thank God that sometimes he answers no or not yet. We are often impatient or rash, but... Our Heavenly Father gives us what is best for us according to His perfect time. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that our Father has our best interest in mind? Do you believe that He is infinite in wisdom to know what is ultimately best for you and when it is best for you? If so, then we must not presume that we know better than God. And if you ever doubt the wisdom and care and provision of the Father, then look to the rugged cross. Look to the cross where our Savior bled and died. The cross of Christ stands as the definitive proof of God's love for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so when we pray to God, we can pray with great expectations because we can rely upon his benevolent character revealed in his word and demonstrated by the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God is all-powerful. He holds your life together. God is all-knowing. He knows what is best for you. God is benevolent, and he loves you so much to death on the cross. These are compelling incentives to pray with great confidence. Next, God-centered prayer seeks the glory of God. Look with me to verse 21. Paul writes, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. John Stott comments here, God desires glory in the bride and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace and in the peacemaker. And for how long, we ask? Well, it says throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever without end. Forever God will be glorified in the church. Forever God will be glorified in Christ Jesus. And this is how Paul concludes his prayer. Why? Because he ultimately seeks for God's glory over himself. In Paul's mind, the priority is very clear. God first over everything else. If God is really first over everything else, then our thinking will begin to change. Our desires will begin to change. Our prayers will begin to change. I remember one time at a prayer meeting I was leading, we divided up into small groups and then I was in charge of leading the, the little children. And then I went around in a circle and asking for prayer topics. And so I asked each, each of the children, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? And then one of them replied like this. He said, pray for my homework. And then I'm like, mm, okay, I have an idea of what he's trying to say. And I said, okay, well, what do you want me to pray for about your homework? And then he said, pray that I will do my homework. I'm like, okay, I, I can pray for that. And I asked the next child, um, how can I pray for you? And then he replied, pray that I will practice piano. I'm like, okay. And I asked another child, and then, and then the child replied, I don't know, everything's okay. I, I don't know what I need prayer for. You know, they, they are cute little children. You know, obviously they have some growing up to do. Uh, but it is rather alarming when I lead a group of adults in prayer and there seems to not be much difference. Many Christians in the church still think and pray like little children. They lack depth in their prayer. They lack perspective when they pray. And when they pray, they pray as if the world revolves around them. 
They pray as if God exists for them and not the other way around. They pray, God, I want this. God, I want that. God, I want good grades. God, I want a good job. God, I want you to take away my problems. And I'm not saying that we can't ask these things from God. We most definitely should. We present our requests and petitions before God, for we are his needy children. But I want you to remember how Jesus prayed on the night before his crucifixion. He prayed like this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so we ask and we plead, but our heart's desire must always be, God, your will be done. God knows better. God's way is better than my way. God, your thoughts are better than my thoughts. I ask for these things, but God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. God's will over my own. We must constantly seek God's will, seek to align our will with his will. God must become so central in our thoughts, in our thinking, in our lives. He must become first before ourselves, before our families, before our careers, before everything. Because we could be praying frequently, we could be praying passionately, we could be praying with tears and praying elegantly, but our prayers could still be totally self-centered. However, only when our prayers reflect a heart that is seeking God's will be done, God be glorified, then we are finally praying God-centered prayers. D.A. Carson asks a very helpful question to distinguish between the proximate goal of prayer and the ultimate goal of prayer. He asks this, do we pray and bring these petitions both with approximate goal that we might receive what we ask for and with an ultimate goal that God might be glorified? Brothers and sisters, in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let us present our request to God but may we never forget the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal being that God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Finally, God-centered prayer submits to God's truth. The final word we find at the end of Paul's prayer in verse 21 is the word, Amen. Many of us might be conditioned to say amen when we pray, when we praise God, and we might be saying amen without even realizing what it, what it really means. But this little word at the end of a prayer should be said with conviction and with resolve. Amen is a Hebrew word that can be translated as true or truly. In the Old Testament, there are accounts where the covenant people of God are gathered 
And when they hear the word of the Lord, they respond together, Amen. Affirming the truthfulness of the word that they just heard. And of course, in the New Testament, Amen continues to be used by the people of God. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. The utterance of Amen is an acknowledgement that the word that has been heard, whether a word of praise, a word of prayer, or an exhortation from a sermon, is valid, that is sure and binding. So this little word is one that is centered on the idea of the truth of God. You see, when you say the word Amen, you're not just saying, yes, I agree. That's too weak. When you say amen, you're saying something so much stronger. You're saying, this truth is from God, therefore, let it be so. Or, this truth is from God, therefore, I will do, I will submit. Truth that is from God is sure and binding. That is why we regard the Word of God, the Bible, so highly. The Word of God alone is the ultimate and infallible source of authority for the Christian faith and practice. That is why when we sing a song or a hymn that reflects biblical truth, we can say, Amen. That's why when we confess a creed that is in accordance with God's truth, biblical truth, we can say, Amen. That's why when we hear the preaching of the word that exposits biblical truth, we can say, Amen. And that's why when we hear prayer that is rooted and grounded in biblical truth, we can say, Amen. I remember something profound that my seminary professor, Ligon Duncan, said to me that forever changed how I pray and forever changed how I even think about prayer. He said that pastors need to spend time plundering into the language of the Bible. And if my prayer is so rich in scripture and theology, I cannot lack confidence in my prayers because it comes from the word of God. And then he gave me a new vision for the pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings. He said, when a pastor is praying on the pulpit, it is like putting the whole church on their back and carrying them all the way to the throne of God by praying the promises of God. The Puritans called this pleading the promises, pleading the promises of God. God makes us promises to us in his word and we pray them back to God. We pray the Bible back to God. And praying like this gives us great confidence because we know that God's word does not lie and his promises are sure. For we know that all of God's promises to us are, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. These promises have begun to be fulfilled in Christ's first coming and they will be fully consummated at Christ's return. That is why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, 
For no matter how many promises that God has made, they are yes in Christ. And through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So we say amen at the end of a prayer, and we submit ourselves to God's truth. And so, beloved church, let us resolve to reform our understanding and practice of prayer according to the Holy Scriptures. Our understanding and practice of prayer must be shaped and directed by the Word of God. And if we do so, we will pray with greater confidence and with great expectations. And let us resolve to pray God-centered prayers that acknowledges God's power, that relies upon God's character, that seeks for God's glory, and that submits to God's truth. Let us pray. Lord, we kneel before you, our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray, as we are rooted and established in love, that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to you, our God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.